Ferdinand and Isabella set out to forge a homogenous Catholic Spanish nation after completing the Reconquista. Mass forced conversions in the late 14th century created a new class of Christians, known as conversos, most of whom had been Jewish before their baptism. In 1492, the Spanish monarchs expelled the few remaining Jews from Spain's borders in order to prevent Jewish culture from corrupting those conversos. The Spanish Inquisition, which was created a decade earlier, was then tasked at rooting out heresy among the conversos and keeping them on the path to Spanish Catholicism. Only 8 out of 1,199 Inquisition prisoners were not conversos over a seven-year period in Catalonia. This first phase of the Spanish Inquisition, targeting conversos, was the bloodiest era for the 300-year religious tribunal. Tomás de Tocmada, the first Grand Inquisitor, liberally sent conversos to the stake for Judaizing. The majority of the 2,000 that were relaxed by the Inquisition occurred during the first chapter. The job that the Inquisition had been assigned was complete. But the story does not end there. The Inquisition continually evolved to face down new threats. After Judaizing conversos vanished from the Spanish territory, the Inquisition turned its attention to the heresy of the old Christians and the looming threat that the Protestant Reformation posed. After dealing with these dual threats, Muslim converts became the new target de jour. Finally, in its fourth phase, during the 17th century, the Inquisition turned its devices upon foreigners and witches. The Inquisition was created for the sole purpose of eliminating Judaizing. Ferdinand and Isabella had managed to create a powerful police force whose loyalty was only to the crown. Although it was not often utilized in such a way, the Inquisition was a potential threat to any Spanish man or woman. It only took one religious misstep, one mass forgotten, one time eating meat on the wrong day, one mistake in prayer for the Inquisition to detain you. Subsequent rulers did not want to give up one of their most formidable tools to keep rival claimants in check. Additionally, the Inquisition made money for the crown, as the sovereigns were entitled to one-third of all confiscated property. The Holy Office, on the other hand, received no operating budget from the regime, and instead persisted via the fines that it levied out and property that it confiscated from heretics. The only time that the Inquisition made a profit was during the very beginning, during which many rich conversos were sent to the flames. In 1540, with arrests of conversos drying up, the Inquisition had to find a new group to levy fines against. Their jobs literally depended upon it. They first turned their focus toward the old Christians. The majority of the trials during the later half of the 16th century were for palabras deshonestas, which is to say unseemly talk such as blasphemy, scandalous remarks, jokes and bad taste about the faith. As inquisitors went out searching for criminals and heretics, they instead found a Spanish population that was ignorant of the fundamentals of their faith. In 1539, an inquisitor in Vizcaya reported that, quote, I found men aged 90 who did not know the Hail Mary or how to make the sign of the cross. 
Now, many American Christians might have trouble with the Hail Mary, but if you cannot figure out the sign of the cross, you definitely have not been paying attention at Mass. There were some legitimate reasons for these failures among Spanish Catholics. Foremost among them was the fact that there was not a single uniform language yet in Spain. Many rural parishes lacked quality clergy members, and in Catalonia and the Basque regions, most parishioners spoke a different language than the priests. Mass was still done in Latin at this point in time, and Catholics were exceedingly cautious of allowing translations of church writings into the local population's language, as such reform was closely associated with Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. The Inquisition began exiting their offices and torture chambers to serve on mission trips throughout rural Spain. The Jesuit Pedro de Leon reported meeting Spanish inhabitants that lived in caves, dressed like Indians, and lived devoid of all sacraments. The Holy Office, however, was ill-equipped for this effort. They were a punishing body meant to deter heresy, not to serve like a religious outreach group. They were regarded as an alien body that came to frighten and terrorize the locals. They were feared rather than loved. While Niccolò Machiavelli found it safer to be feared than loved, it meant that even the successes of the Spanish Inquisition were always at least partially flawed. The process for old Christians was the same as it was for the conversos. The Inquisition's imminent arrival would be announced two weeks prior by local parishes. Once they arrived, a 30-day period called the Edict of Grace would begin. This was where all citizens were encouraged to denounce and report any sins that they were aware of. The prosecutor went through all the self-denunciations and anonymous condemnations of others and decided who to pursue prosecution against. From that point, an investigatory phase began then arrests were made and property was confiscated to pay for the lodging and court fees. Confessions were sought, some torture was done, and then the possibility of an auto de fe was discussed. One of the crucial ways of looking at the Spanish Inquisition is as a social control experiment. In Catalonia from 1578 to 1635, nearly one-third of the 996 Catalans that were disciplined by the Inquisition were in trouble for what they had said rather than anything that they had done. The Inquisition was punishing people for thoughts rather than deeds. Cursing during a game of chance, sexual advances towards a young lady during a religious holiday, eating meat on Fridays, talking obscenely about the Virgin Mary, all of these were the typical transgressions within the thousands of cases that were pursued. But leaving the deterrence theory, the Spanish Inquisition went harsher on these rural, uneducated areas, rather than excusing their sacrilege to a lack of resources. There's some evidence that this form of social control and criminal deterrence actually worked. An analysis of 747 interrogations from the Tribunal of Toledo suggests that there was an improvement in knowledge of the Catholic essentials during the late 16th century. Before 1550, only about 40% of those questioned were able to repeat basic Catholic prayers. By the 1590s, nearly 70% were able to recite the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Credo, the Salve Regi, and the Ten Commandments. The Inquisition also attempted to indoctrinate the Spanish countryside with its own morals. Simple fornication, i.e. voluntary intercourse between two unmarried adults, was not prohibited by the Spanish civil courts. 
In fact, prostitution was legal during this time in Spain. But the Holy Inquisitors believed that it disrespected the sacrament of matrimony. In Toledo, simple fornication constituted one-fifth of all prosecutions from 1566 to 1570, and that percentage climbed to a quarter of all prosecutions from 1601 to 1605. There were some odd, unwritten moral codes during this time. For example, in 1599, a Barcelonian man hired a prostitute and proceeded to tell her that what they were about to do together was a sin. She countered, saying it was not a sin because both were willing and unmarried. The man proceeded to denounce her to the Inquisition. She was not arrested, but instead had to check in with the Inquisition offices every day for two weeks until she had successfully memorized some prayers. Bigamy, or the act of being unfaithful to your spouse, was another common sin that piqued the interest of the Inquisition. Spain did not permit divorce, which meant that there was no way out of an unsatisfactory marriage. About 5% of all cases tried by the Inquisition involved cheating. The standard punishment provided was to serve the maximum five years as a galley rower or slave. The civil courts gave out a much lighter punishment if you fell under their jurisdiction for the same crime. When a case concerning fornication or solicitation by a priest or church official came up, the Inquisition tended to punish the priest quietly or not at all, so that the reputation of the church was not dragged through the muck. Solicitation during one-on-one -on -one confessions were dealt with harshly by the Holy Office, as it perverted the Holy Sacrament, but priests were rarely tortured and never executed for it. Bring up the concepts of any early Middle Age Christian faith and homosexuality and you will quickly get some groans and oh no's from the audience. Homosexuality in the Middle Ages was treated as the ultimate crime against morality. Definitions at the time referred to it as the abominable or unspeakable crime. The typical punishments dealt out by European nations included burning alive, castration, and or stoning the perpetrator to death. In Spain, they also confiscated your property. In 1509, however, the Suprema, a governing body of the Inquisition, declared that there should be no action taken against gay men or women unless heresy was involved. The Inquisition was also surprisingly sympathetic on the issue of sodomy compared to their peers. During this time, the definition of sodomy included a huge domain of sexual acts that did not result in the possibility of getting pregnant meaning not only anal coitus was covered, but coitus interruptus and coitus interfemora were also carrying the harsh penalties. In 1494 and 95, the Spanish sentence in civil courts for sodomizing was to have the perpetrators strung up by the feet with their severed testicles draped around their necks. The Holy Office just fined, flogged, or sent the culprits to the galley ships.
Around the same time the Holy Office was dealing with the ignorance of old Christians, a new threat emerged to Catholic Spain. Desiris Erasmus, the father of humanist thought, became famous for his writings and thoughts during the 1530s. Those writings were widely sought after throughout Europe and the Iberian Peninsula. Erasmus and the humanists believed that humans could formulate their own moral code, rather than have it passed down from the church. They encouraged individuals to seek out and read holy works for themselves, rather than always trusting whatever they were told. Martin Luther is said to have hatched the egg that Erasmus laid, and all hell broke loose across Christian Europe. Religious wars along the borders of Germany and within the heart of Switzerland and France broke out. Every nation dealt with upstart Protestant faiths that were reinterpreting Christianity for themselves. The Protestants were victorious in many locations, either by winning over the masses with their populist ideas or after being co-opted by a monarch that wished to twist Catholicism for their own gain, as King Henry VIII did in creating the Church of England almost entirely so that he could divorce his wife. The religious wars spread like wildfire after the revelations of Martin Luther, but they never found any kindling within Spain's borders. The Inquisition is probably the reason for that failure. First, the Inquisition had just completed 100 years manipulating the Spanish people via social control regarding religion. Their harsh punishments taught that there was a clear and correct way to worship, and any deviation from it would result in swift physical and or financial hardship. Secondly, the Inquisition set up a directory for what books were and were not allowed. With the invention of the printing press, literature had become accessible to the masses. The Spanish Inquisition was slow to ban books, and each district made its own banned book list, which ultimately meant that a bookseller might not be able to sell a book in Barcelona, but the customer could travel to Toledo to legally purchase it. The challenges that the Inquisition imposed, however, just made it one step tougher to publish in Spain, and with so many other markets open for business, many authors never attempted to circulate their work into Spain in the first place. Third, the punishing institution for heretical belief, which the Catholic Church designated Protestants as, was already set up and ready to go. Spain was the only European nation that possessed a national institute devoted to the elimination of heresy. Its vigilance and coordination of efforts likely checked the seeds of Protestantism before they could be sowed, let alone harvested. As a result, Protestantism never managed to get a serious toehold in Spain. This does not mean that they did not try. The largest Protestant group in Spain were cultists of Illuminism, which garnered the attention of the Spanish Inquisition in 1559. Illuminism was an offshoot of Erasmism. Unlike most faiths, there was not a singular homogenous body or doctrine. Instead, it developed within a variety of sects that all aspired to produce a more authentic religious life, freed from the dogmatic traditions of Catholicism. It presented a considerably more personal relationship with God. Individuals would come together to read the Bible, comment on it, and discuss methods of living a life nearer to God. There were no masses, vocal prayers, or external spokespersons, all of which made it incredibly difficult for the Inquisition to root out. 
Erasmus and Illuminism penetrated the Spanish borders through the Netherlands, which, as it was the homeland of the Spanish King Charles V, was problematic for Spain to close its borders to. Ultimately, Illuminism, Erasmus, and other Protestant faiths and leaders never captured the attention of the congregates of Spain. Another reason for this was that there was not a huge consortium of academics in Spain during this time. While there were a number of universities, the Florentine ambassador said in 1512 that, quote, the Spaniards are not much interested in letters, and one finds very little knowledge either among the nobility or in other classes, and few people know Latin. There's some evidence to the truth of this. In 1561, Cardinal Mendoza was asked to suggest Spanish scholars that possess knowledge of Greek, and therefore might suitably participate on Spain's behalf for the Council of Trent. He could only name four people in the entire country that fit the criteria. There were flare-ups that caught the Inquisition's attention, but nothing compared to the trials of the Conversos era. In 1558, Protestant groups were discovered in two of Spain's largest cities, Valladolid and Seville. However, those arrested were ordered by Queen Joanna to be treated as rebels rather than heretics. Fourteen of those were condemned to death. The next year, a few dozen Lutherans were burnt at the stake, which led to an outpouring of support from European Protestants. This marked the beginning of anti-Inquisition propaganda, which still colors our thoughts regarding the Holy Office. Significantly, nearly every single person that was implicated by the Inquisition in the Protestant era was a conversos. Protestantism was never able to successfully break through to traditional Spanish Catholics. Even in the late 1500s, the conversos were finding it difficult to find their place within Spanish Catholicism. In 1562, there were 88 cases of Protestantism that were punished. Of those, 18 were burnt in person. Among them were a church official and four of his priests. This occasion was marked by a sizable auto de fe that sought to warn the population of the gravity of the situation. It also served to buy the Inquisition more time, as the old and alien Inquisitor General Valdez used it as propaganda mission to stamp out the Protestant threat with a heavy hand. During this period of 1559 to 1566, just over a hundred people were killed by the Spanish Inquisition. This paled in comparison to the number of English Protestants that Catholic Queen Mary had burnt at the stake, earning her the title of Bloody Mary. More than twice the number died in French King Henry II's oppression of the Protestants. And in the Netherlands, at least ten times as many perished at the hands of Catholic leaders. It is pathetically simplistic scholarship to look at the Spanish Inquisition as an extraordinary bloodthirsty body of repression. Comparing Spain to its European peers reveals that the Inquisition, while brutal, may have prevented more deaths than it caused. The last 20 years of the 16th century saw 200 Protestants arrested in Spain, with only a few executed. Queen Mary burnt at least 287 in the five years of her rule of England. Most of the Spanish cases originated in France. Travelers from France were singled out for suspicion due to Spain's proximity to the Calvinist areas of southern France. 
This focus brings into clarity the Spanish Inquisition's xenophobic and racist tendencies. Such accusations still follow the culture of Spain today. The next stage of the Inquisition finally gets to the third leg that held up La Conviencia, the period where Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived within one land in harmony. That leg would include the Muslims of Spain. The last holdout in the Reconquista was Granada, which comprised the largest population of Spanish Muslims. The terms of surrender were quite generous to the majority Muslim population of Granada. The Muslims were granted the right to maintain their customs, property, laws, and religion, as well as their own government officials, as long as they were supervised by Castilian governors. Actual life in Granada was not as tolerant as the terms had promised, and the Muslims of Granada revolted in 1499. The government of Spain suppressed the revolt and contended that that revolt invalidated the treaty agreements for Granada. Mass forced conversions of the Muslims followed. Like the Jews, there was great pressure for all Muslims to convert to Catholicism. Instead of conversos, Muslim converts bore the term moriscos. The efforts to convert all Muslims were undertaken by the Spanish crown from 1502 to 1526. This overlapped the period that most of the Inquisition's time was consumed with the eradication of Judaizers from the conversos population. There was no expulsion order for Muslims. In 1526, the Kingdom of Aragon presented it instead as a convert-or-die choice to the entire population of Muslims. Officially, from 1526 onward, there was not a single Muslim in Aragon. This, of course, is ridiculous, just like it's absurd for the Islamic Republic of Iran to claim in 2020 that there are no gay people within their borders. Gay men and women in Iran exist. They just know that if they come out, that they will be stoned to death. In Spain, Muslims continued to practice their faith in secret, much in the same way that many Jewish conversos had. Publicly, there were several adjustments experienced to life by Spanish moriscos. To hide among the Christians, they had to abandon their religious festivals, their traditional clothing, and their use of the Arabic language. While the Inquisition was concentrated on the conversos and then Protestants and old Christians, they treated the moriscos with respect. The Grand Inquisitor passed out instructions that called for the Holy Office to act with benevolence and to leave the moriscos alone unless their manifestations of Islam became too blatant for them to ignore. This deference began to change in Castile in 1556. Moriscos in that territory were suddenly forbidden to speak Arabic, celebrate their festivals, or use public baths. They even outlawed the hijab, the veil that women wore when not in private with their closest of relatives. This decision caused open rebellion in Castile. The speedy struggle resulted in a Morisco defeat, after which Spain began to forcibly relocate them to other parts of the country. This was designed with the express purpose of preventing another uprising, as well as to aid the conversion of the Moriscos by isolating them. But it had the opposite effect. Suddenly, sizable numbers of Spain's hardest workers, 
were scattered throughout Castile. The Moriscos became instant competitors to old Christians in the labor market. This did not help as they were already perceived of being half-hearted or bad Christians. Many of the Moriscos additionally had trouble fitting in because they did not speak Spanish. All this served to marginalize and radicalize them. The church began to regard the Moriscos as a new kind of fifth column to the church and began to treat them as internal enemies who were ready at the moment to join with the Turks or Protestants if either raised arms against Spain. Meetings at the very top levels of government were convened and all options were placed on the table. They even discussed radical options such as castrating all Spanish moriscos, as well as deporting all of them to the New World. Ironically, it was the Inquisition that tempered the craziest ideas. The Grand Inquisitor spoke against such acts because the moriscos were Christians. They might have been bad at being Christian, but the Holy Office still viewed them as such because they had received the sacrament of baptism. Ferdinand sided with the Grand Inquisitor, stating, quote, If your horse trips up, you don't uncase your sword to kill him. Instead, you give him a smack on his flanks. So my view, and that of the Queen, is that these Moors be baptized, and if they don't become Christians, their children and grandchildren will. The decision came down and Spain saw a repeat of the events of 1492, as they expelled any Morisco in Granada that was not willing to fully adapt to Spanish Christianity. Unlike the Jews, the Moriscos could take all the possessions they owned and cash that they could carry. Credible estimates believe that 300,000 Moriscos left. That equates to less than 5% of the total population of Spain. The largest single group, 40,000, went to Morocco, where they were badly received on the basis that they were Christians. The Moriscos that stayed were granted legal equality with Christians, but were denied the right to carry arms and were put under intense pressure to prove their Christianity by abandoning their culture. Mass bonfires of Arabic books were ordered by royal decree in 1501, the repression of Islam that began in Granada spread through the provinces of Spain. Isabella abolished the plurality of faiths in her dominions and passed various decrees designed to modify the cultural identity of the Moriscos, including their use of Arabic, their clothing, their jewelry, the ritual slaughter of animals, and circumcision, all of which came under attack. In 1526, a decree that encouraged intermarriage between Moriscos to old Christians was passed in a blatant attempt to dilute bloodlines. Valencia, home to Spain's second-largest Muslim population, also participated in forced mass baptisms, but for different reasons. Across Valencia, Muslims were almost exclusively living in rural communities that were subject to the landowning elite. The rulers of Valencia saw the opportunity to baptize Muslims as an option which would force the nobles to free their vassals. Elevating them to Christianity would trigger new rights for the workers. As an inducement, they privately agreed to let the Moriscos, 
after their baptism, remain free of any inquisitor prosecution for 40 years. Just like in Granada, however, the truth of what happened in the streets was different than what had been promised. Aragon was the only kingdom that did not quickly turn against its Muslim citizens. Like in Valencia, Muslims formed the backbone of cheap labor in the province. The phrase, mientras mas moros mas granacia, was the law of the land. It translates to, more Muslims equals more profit. Ferdinand repeatedly warned the Inquisition to not prosecute Muslims or resort to forced conversion. It was not until the Granada Revolt that they were subject to the same conversion demands that other Muslims had faced. Despite the forced nature of conversions, the Catholic Church held those conversions up as valid. Their argument was that it was not a forced conversion if the Muslims had an option. It did not matter that that choice was convert or die. After the period of mass conversions ended, Morisco still retained large populations throughout Spain. In the 1560s, they made up 56% of Granada's population. In Valencia, they were one-third of the total. In Aragon, they made up a fifth of the total population. The fact that they were a majority population in Granada allowed them to preserve most of their religion and their culture. There, they even got away with speaking Arabic. Officially, they spoke Spanish. Officially, of course, they spoke Spanish, but among themselves they wrote an Arabic script, which was unreadable by the Inquisition. Frustrated, the Holy Office would classify any Arabic script that they confiscated as the Quran. In 1571, Moriscos were granted a respite from Inquisitor efforts. A Concordia was passed in October by which, in return for an annual payment of 2,500 ducats, they would not confiscate the property of Moriscos on trial for heresy. Monetary fines would be levied, but an artificial ceiling limited the fines to 10 ducats only. This was one of the first streams of consistent annual revenue for the Inquisition, it acted as a pressure release valve for Moriscos that wanted to clandestinely remain Muslim. In 1504, a fatwa, or religious ruling, was handed down in North Africa. This fatwa ruled that during times of persecution, Muslims could conform to virtually all outward rules of Christianity without reflecting a change in their true faith. Their faith had just given them a blessing to falsely pretend to be Christian. This ruling circulated across Spain as an illegal pamphlet in the 1560s. In 1513, the Archbishop Talavera of Granada was allowing the singing of Arabic hymns during Mass, and the opening greeting, The Lord be with you, was spoken in Arabic. In 1541, the Admiral of Aragon, Sancho de Moncada, was reprimanded by the Inquisition for constructing a mosque for his Morisco workers. He went so far as to personally instruct them to pretend to be Christians externally. The difference in this positive encouragement for Muslims to hang on to their faith while the Jewish faith was systematically deconstructed 
was purely economic. Spanish Muslims were responsible for a lot of back-breaking labor for little pay, while Spanish Jews tended to have white-collar jobs that paid well and were sought after by old Christians. This willingness to look the other way regarding Muslims extended up to the year 1656, when one of the best-selling books in Spain was a seedy romance novel titled Abyssiria e Jaffa, which detailed a love story between a Christian and a Muslim. Overwhelmingly, the Moriscos rejected assimilation. When looking at our multicultural society, it seems insane to obsess over eradicating another's culture. The irrationality of this was apparent to some observers in real time. The Count of Tendilla criticized Ferdinand's policies by asking about the 700 years the Christians lived under the government of the Muslim Moors. Quote, what clothing did we used to wear in Spain? How did we wear our hair? What sort of food did we eat if not the Morisco style? Changing Muslim culture, therefore, meant erasing a sizable chunk of the nation's Christian history when it lived under the Moors. The culture versus religion struggle was best summed up by Francisco Nunez Muli, who stated plainly that the Egyptians, Syrians, Maltese, and other Christian people speak, read, and write in Arabic, and are still Christian as we are. The cultural fight spilled over into the streets in the Second Revolt of Granada on Christmas Eve of 1568. What followed was a savage war between Christian and Muslims that offered up atrocities on both sides. Thousands of Moriscos died, and over 80,000 were forcibly exiled from the kingdom. It was one of the most savage wars in Europe during the 16th century, and King Philip II was stunned at the number of priests that had been massacred by the Moriscos. Worse, 4,000 Turks and Berbers had arrived in Spain to support the insurgents. The Granada War created a decisive change in attitudes, and the Inquisition was sent in to clean up the mess. From the 1570s through 1600, Moriscos formed the bulk of Inquisition prosecutions. In Granada, they represented 82% of those persecuted between 1560 and 1571. The Inquisition still did not live up to its reputation as a murderous body, however. In Kunsa, only seven Moriscos were relaxed out of the 102 cases from 1583 to 1600. And in Granada, only 20 were relaxed out of the 917 Morisco cases that appeared between 1550 and 1595. The Moriscos and the Inquisition were clearly on opposite sides, however, as the writings of a group of Moriscos made clear when they wrote that the Inquisitors were, quote, thieving wolves whose trade is arrogance and greed, sodomy and lust, tyranny, robbery, and injustice. The Inquisition was a tribunal of the devil, attended by deceit and blindness. The widespread and rural nature of Spanish Muslim traditions may have been what saved them. Unlike Spanish Jews, who overwhelmingly resided in cities and even then selectively clustered in the same neighborhoods within those cities, Moriscos worked all over the countryside. 
1568, the Bishop of Tortosa had this to say, quote, These people have me fed up and exasperated. They have a damnable attitude and make me despair of any good in them. I have been through these mountains for eight days now and find them more Muslim than ever and very set in their bad ways. I repeat my advice that they should be given a general pardon without insisting on conversion, for there is no other way unless it be to burn them all. All of them live as Muslims and no one doubts this." As the Inquisition's attention turned towards Granada, Valencia became the new center of unrest. In 1608, after a series of coastal raids by Moriscos, the Spaniards forcibly disarmed all of them. This resulted in them asking for and receiving help from the Muslims of Morocco. The invasion of a foreign Muslim army brought fear back into the heart of Spain. Once again, castration was discussed as an option. Demographics were favoring the Moriscos by this point. A chronicler of the time wrote very xenophobically that the Moriscos' aim was to grow and multiply like weeds. In 1498, there had been 5,674 Muslims in Aragon, but by 1610, the population of Moriscos had grown to 14,190. The Christian population had grown by 44% during that time, in which the Moriscos had grown by 69.7%. Once again, expulsion carried the debate and more than 300,000 were expelled out of the 320,000 that made up Valencia's Morisco population. Frenchman Cardinal Richelieu, the man who oversaw the destruction of the Protestants and the rise of Louis the Sun King, claimed that the Spanish expulsion of the Moriscos was one of the most barbaric acts in the history of mankind. Although the fictional Morisco character of Ricote in Don Quixote applauded the act, saying that it, quote, expelled the poisonous fruit from Spain, which was now clean and free of the fears in which our numbers held her. As you might imagine, the impact was severe There was an immediate economic catastrophe, tax returns plummeted, and agricultural output declined. And less tragic but extremely problematic for our subject at hand, the Inquisition lost its only dependable stream of income, the money that it was accepting to overlook the Moriscos. Besides the revenue loss in Valencia, the tribunals of Saragossa also objected that the decision would bankrupt the Holy Office. In Valencia, 42.7% of its income had come directly from the Morisco population. Saragossa lost 48% of its revenue. The Inquisition may have been against the expulsion, but it continued to support the crown. After 1609, the Holy Office gave each Morisco the choice of punishment or exile. Most chose exile, thus ending that chapter in the Inquisition's story. The Inquisition always acted on heretics that it encountered. 
but the last true phase of the Inquisition began when it took on the world of witches and sorcerers. Today we scoff at the idea of witches and wonder how backwards and ignorant of science previous generations that did believe in witches were, but it is important to put the belief of witches into context. The exceedingly religious society of Spain believed in miracles that the non-religious could call sorcery. In fact, Christians today still believe in what could be deemed as witchcraft. Although worshipping false gods and idolatry are capital sins, the Catholic Church is often accused of promoting such behavior. This is through their encouragement of praying directly to the Virgin Mary as well as to the saints. My wife is among the hundreds of millions of Catholics that believe in the small miracles of St. Joseph, the patron saint of families, carpenters, and working people. I have sold two houses during my adult life, and each time my wife prayed to St. Joseph and then took a small figurine of the man and buried him in the garden upside down. The supposed magic is that St. Joseph hates being buried in the garden upside down, therefore he uses his powers to help you sell your house quicker. Once the miracle is complete, you unbury him and send your thanks in prayer. Unfortunately, my wife forgot to dig him up from the last sale, so if any of this stuff is true, then I'm in huge trouble when it comes to selling my next house. God appeared via a burning bush to speak to Moses. Jesus rose from the dead after three days and walked out of the tomb. Water has become wine in the Bible, and fish were multiplied to feed a feast. These are all miracles that churchgoers believe in. But ask yourself, how much of a difference is there between that and what is labeled witchcraft? If miracles of God can be done on earth, why can't curses of the devil occur as well? The point to all of this is not to say that witches were real, but that people legitimately believed that it was possible that they were real. In the 1600s, witchcraft accounted for one-fifth of all Inquisition prosecutions. The Inquisition purposefully ignored beneficial witchcraft. Potions, charms, and spells to help a girl win the affection of her loved one were all okay if they did not try to subvert official Catholicism. Non-beneficial witchcraft, on the other hand, had been a crime of heresy as early as 1370 in Castile. In 1484, Pope Innocent VIII issued the bull Summaris Desiderantes, which recognized witchcraft as a disease that needed to be rooted out, and two German-Dominican friars wrote one of the most influential books in European history, the Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer of Witches. This work of pseudo-history contained a compilation of case studies involving witches that worked at the behest of the devil. The work changed witchcraft from a delusion to a fact. After the Malleus Maleficarum, it was common knowledge that witches did in fact exist. They did eat and devour human children, they copulated with demons, and of course, they flew on brooms to their meetings. Subsequent decrees from popes and bishops codified the belief that the Malleus Maleficarum was a work of non-fiction. The practice across Europe was to burn witches at the stake, and the Spanish Inquisition initially complied.
1520, the Edicts of Grace began to add magic, sorcery, and witchcraft to the list of offenses that locals were encouraged to confess to. However, in 1538, the Grand Inquisitor Vald of Olives instructed that inquisitors should not view the confession of witches as literal truth. Instead, these confessions should be viewed with a large dose of skepticism. Instead of burning these women at the stake, the Inquisition should inform them that things like the loss of harvests and other ills are either sent by God for our sins or are the result of bad weather, not witches. The only exception to the leniency towards witches in Spain occurred in the province of Navarre, which borders France. In 1609, 80 witches were burned at the stake in France, and a new book on witchcraft, the Tableau de la Inconce, was published in 1612. These executions and writings set off a witch scare that caught up Inquisitor Alonso de Salazar Fries. Sorcerers were accused of poisoning children with a green soup made from toads and children's hearts in his province. Witches made the venom after flying to a nocturnal meeting where they proceeded to smear their naked bodies with an ointment after kissing a black cat. In response, Inquisitor Alonso delivered 29 accused witches to an auto de fe, burning six alive and five in effigy. The main piece of evidence in the trial was the word of a hired witch expert who claimed that she could correctly identify a witch by looking at their left eye which was the location where the devil left his mark. The Grand Inquisitor intervened and sent Inquisitor Alonso for correctional training to the other provinces of Spain to see how they dealt with the witches. Salazar's mission changed him. During the mission, he took the testimony of 1,802 Spanish individuals who had all claimed to have experienced witchcraft either directly or indirectly. After serious legal examination of the testimonies that he collected, Salazar reported that, quote, I have not found the slightest evidence from which to infer that a single act of witchcraft has really occurred. Indeed, my previous suspicion has been strengthened by new evidence from the visitation, that the evidence of the accused alone, without external proof, is insufficient to justify arrest, and that three quarters and more have accused themselves falsely. I also feel certain that under present conditions there is no need for fresh edicts or the prolongation of those existing which would make the disease stay in the public mind, every agitation of the matters which is more harmful and increases the evil. I deduce the importance of silence and reserve from my experience that there were neither witches nor bewitched until they were talked and written about." End quote. This once again suggests that the Spanish Inquisition was not looking to burn first and ask questions later. Pedro de Valencia, a scholar, reported that there was a large degree of mental sickness in the witchcraft events which had previously happened in Navarre. He advocated for any arrested witch to have a thorough medical examination. The Inquisition was ahead of its time, but not particularly enlightened. Valencia discussed his cure for their mental illness, saying that, quote, their conduct is more that of a madman rather than heretics, and therefore should be cured with whips and sticks rather than sanbenitos." As the Inquisition stayed its hand of justice, the rest of Spain stepped into the vacuum. The Spanish civil court still executed accused witches when they fell within their jurisdiction. The civil courts hung them rather than burning them, and the numbers executed by the secular authorities are unknown. 
Compared to both the Spanish courts and the rest of medieval Europe, the Spanish Inquisition was the most protective of witches by a country mile. While this is a positive, there's some disagreement over the intent behind the policy. Historian Trevor Roper argues that witches were treated less harshly in Spain compared to the rest of Europe because society seeks scapegoats for the misfortunes of the time, such as wars, plagues, famines, and so on. In Spain, Jews and Muslims were blamed for such things. Since they already had their scapegoats, women who flew on broomsticks escaped the blame in Spain. Occasionally, the Inquisition did come across a witch that demanded the flames. The last death sentence ever passed by the Spanish Inquisition was one such instant. An old madwoman known as La Vita Ciega, or the Blind Zealot, had confessed to seducing young clerics and performing acts of magic. She was convicted and burnt in Seville after she was garroted for confirming her confession. Not every criminal that the Inquisition encountered fit one of the descriptions that we covered. For the most part, though, the Inquisition fell into five clear categories. It first dealt with the Jewish conversos, after which it turned its attention to the heresy of the old Christians before it became engrossed by the threat of Protestantism. Moriscos, the Muslim converts, then posed the largest threat. And finally, the Inquisition dealt with witchcraft. In our final Inquisition episode, we will cover the closure of the Holy Office and the effects that it had on Spanish society.